Hey everyone, this is Heidi St. John. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm glad you guys are here because I think you're going to be really encouraged and inspired by my guest. We're going to spend some time uh, today and tomorrow, hopefully, talking about the importance of adoption and the foster care system, which really is broken. I have a new guest on the show. I told him before we started, he's going to be my off-the-bench hero for this week. His name is Glenn Harwood. We're going to have a fantastic conversation. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Well, for those of you who are newer or new-ish, I should say, to the show, I want to say welcome to you. If you have been listening for a while, we would love it if you'd leave reviews for this show over at iTunes and uh, let other people know about the Off the Bench podcast. We recently passed 15 million downloads since we started using the new platform, Anchor, and so we're excited to see that grow. Also want to let you know that we've got a new study we're working on at MomStrong International, and for the month of October, I will be returning to my role as the uh, the primary teacher and writer for MomStrong International, we're going to be studying about identity. God has a lot to say about our identity and Him, who we are. We're confused in the church right now. Uh, the culture is certainly on its head in a lot of ways. I think it's because the church has forgotten its role in the culture. It's one of the reasons I'm excited to have uh, to have my guest on today. Glenn Harwood is with me today after a 22 year career. As an army officer, he moved his family of four to Midland, Texas, and began a second career as an assistant U.S. attorney, in other words, a federal prosecutor. After six and a half years as a federal prosecutor, he decided to run for district attorney. So he's going to have a big fight ahead of him. That primary election is going to come up in March of 2024, something I know a few little things about. Uh, During his time in Midland, he and his wife have fostered six children and adopted two of those children through Child Protective Services. And now as a 53-year-old-ish couple, in addition to their mostly grown kids, they're raising a 5-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. Glenn, I'm pleased to have you. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to uh, start today by just talking about your, uh, you know, where you where you started and sort of where you came at you know, how you got to where you are, because there's a lot of people listening to this, you know, the theme of the show. And for it's been, I don't know, eight or nine years that I've been talking about getting off the bench. I'm trying to get people to figure out what it is that God would have them use. What's in your hand, you know, whether it's a position, it's opportunity, you know, for you guys, you've gotten involved uh, in the foster care system and through adoption. But you started out as a career uh, military person, an officer, right, in the military. And so I'm curious. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and then sort of how you got from there to here. Well, uh, my wife and I were married in 1991. Uh, in 1993, I enlisted in the Army and uh, I went to officer candidate school and I started as an infantry officer. Uh, so we got to travel the world a little bit. Uh, a few years later, after an assignment in Germany, uh, I got a scholarship to go to law school. So the Army sent me to law school. Uh, so I went to William and Mary Law School in Virginia. Hey, they're and, about uh, as woke as a school can get. Well, uh, they weren't then. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you survived. You came out and you're okay. I, I did. They were, uh, they were the more conservative school in Virginia. Um, wow. But they, have, uh, they, have, they have gotten a little bit more liberal. There's, there's, uh, there's little specks of conservatism that's still, uh, you know, that you can still find there. It's a good school. What a um, beautiful campus, too. My goodness. It's gorgeous. In fact, my, uh, my oldest son ended up going uh, and getting his undergraduate degree there just a few years ago. So, wow. Um, 
But yes, I I was often uh, told the tales of the various, you know, liberal events happening on campus and things like that. <laughs> I was there not too long ago and I spent a little bit of time in the bookstore and I just I was like, wow, these are the things our young people are reading. This is amazing. <laughs> Williamsburg, Virginia is a must uh, see for people who want to get a little American history. I agree. Uh, trip in. You've got Colonial Williamsburg right there which is beautiful. You've got Jamestown, which is, uh, you know, just down the road and you can see the settlement. And then uh, Yorktown is just down the road as well. So, yeah. uh, so, you know, get a couple hours South of DC on your family uh, history trip and go down to Williamsburg. It's a great I, area. It's I agree. Couldn't agree more. Go in the spring though. It's hot in the summer. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> it's true. So yeah, we went, we went to, uh, to Williamsburg and I spent three years there going to law school. Uh, and then after that, I spent the next 14 years, of my army career as a JAG, uh, primarily as a prosecutor, um, but, but, uh, you know, had a variety of assignments again, all over the world. Um, we spent some time in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. We spent some time in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, we spent some time in Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, mm. we spent, uh, we spent time in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, Washington, DC. And then my last five years in the army were two years in Korea and three years in Germany. Uh, and, and throughout that time, I also spent uh, a couple of years deployed. I, I was in Iraq in both 2003 and 2006 and seven, And then in 2014, I was in Afghanistan. Um, so I had the chance to, to see the world. My family saw the world uh, and serve all over the world. Mm. So it was a great experience. Wow. And so after that, uh, you decided, so you, you, had, you have a second career then. As a federal yeah. prosecutor, and and what was that transition like? So it was a uh, getting hired by the federal government is a uh, is a monstrosity. There's a there's a lengthy process. Um, so we packed our bags in Germany, not knowing where we were moving to uh, about Memorial Day weekend in 2015. Um, but then I got a call that I had been hired uh, in the Western District of Texas. There's 94 districts. Uh, throughout the United States, Texas has four of them, north, south, east, and west. And so I got hired to uh, to come to the Western District of Texas and be a federal prosecutor. Wow. Um, and so so we uh, we put down roots in Midland uh, with our four uh, children at the time. Um, and, and I got to work. Uh, three weeks after we moved here, our oldest went off to college. Um, and then we had another one graduate high school the next year and leave for college. And then three years later... Another one left for college, and uh, just recently, about a year, fourteen months ago, our fourth uh, left for college. So, wow, we in the you know we were in the process of becoming empty nesters, uh, but then um, some other things came up. Wow. So I want to I want to I'm going to jump into that in just a minute because I really want to spend a lot of our time today talking about um, your move into the foster system, the foster care system, and what how God sort of uh, Put that on your heart. But before we do that, I want to jump into your run because you decided to run for district attorney. You still, you told me before, I thought your primary was coming up in March of 2023, but it's 2024. So you've still got a little bit of time to get ready. What in the world would uh, motivate you to do something like running for this position? Well, I, I wouldn't have thought when I moved to Midland that I would be uh, well situated to run for public office because I was relatively new to the area. Um, but I actually came to learn that, that that became an advantage. 
Um, the office of district attorney, particularly in Texas, uh, you're the person in the county that that makes decisions about what cases, uh, you know, get indicted and what cases go to trial and how how cases are resolved. Everything from, you know, petty offenses up to, you know, rapes and murders and those types of things. So it's a it's a position with a lot of responsibility um, and it's an elected position. Uh, and then all the prosecutors work for you. Uh, and in Midland, we've had a couple of bad years um, with with the way the office has gone. And so law enforcement started encouraging me several years ago to think about running for it. Um, because it's an elected position and all the prosecutors work for the district attorney, the people with potential in the district attorney's office to take over are kind of stuck because they work for the incumbent. Uh, so they can't uh, very easily run against their boss. Um, so it became an advantage that I'm a little bit of an outsider as a federal prosecutor where I could I can actually, uh, you know, credibly take on the district attorney and, uh, you know, and run for that office uh, because I don't work for her. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so there there uh, there is that layer of accountability. I have, I'm curious because I know a lot of people listening are going to be they're going to feel the same way I am. Why, why do these positions matter? So we see them come up in our, you know, in our voter guides, um, people who are running for, I met a woman running for coroner. I'm like, you have to run for that? You know, why is that, why is that position matter? I think for, we're kind of an uneducated voter, uh, voting public right now. And we're paying a pretty steep price for it. Why should voters care? So, you know, because most people listening to this are not in your area. Why should they care who's running for the DA job? Sure. The, uh, the person who holds that type of position um, has an important position of trust. And I, I truly view it as a position of trust. You're a trustee of the authority. Mm. You're a trustee of, of the jobs of the people that work in your office. Um, it, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the state of Texas. It belongs to Midland County. And, and you're entrusted with that authority in those positions. Um, <clears throat> And it's an awesome amount of authority. If, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if somebody uh, is engaged in certain conduct, you're the person ultimately that's responsible for deciding whether uh, that's criminal conduct or not criminal conduct, um, whether or not they're going to be charged with a felony, whether they'll be charged with a misdemeanor, um, whether or not they, they might not be charged at all. So mm. uh, people's lives and their livelihoods um, are at stake when those types of, of decisions are made. Uh, now you see a stark contrast. Midland's a very, very conservative uh, area. Um, we're in West Texas, and um, it's it's a staunchly Republican area. There's other places in Texas, uh, like Austin and Dallas and San Antonio, Houston, El Paso, uh, where you see some of the district attorneys um, are funded by people like George Soros. Yep. And you have this uh, stark contrast between conservatives and liberals. And that's not really the issue in Midland. In Midland, it's it's a matter of judgment and decision making, um, you know. So it's not really conservative versus liberal. So it feels it's, less political. It's it's uh, it's less political, and it's more, um, quite frankly, brass tacks in terms of decisions made and judgment. Um, nonetheless, you know, it, it doesn't matter if somebody's life is ruined because somebody's liberal. Or somebody's in, you know, not competent, or if somebody's just not making decisions that are consistent with the judgment of the community, 
and the values of the community. Uh, people's lives are at stake. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's a career criminal or whether it's a person who just found themselves in a difficult situation, uh, they need to trust the person who's making those decisions. Um, law enforcement needs to trust the person that's making those decisions because really the district attorney's office ultimately ends up being a check on law enforcement. Right. Um, and, and so you can have aggressive law enforcement uh, and, and they might head down a certain direction, but without, you know, somebody that they respect in the district attorney's office that can guide them to correct legal and good judgment type decisions um, that can very quickly uh, you know, go sideways as well. Yeah, I can. So I can see that happening. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So I have a question uh, for you. Before the break, you were talking about how this is such an important position of trust. A lot of people, I mean, there are, I see names that come up on the voters guides where I live all the time that I have no idea, you know, people running for uh, positions of authority in the judiciary. There are people running for positions of authority uh, in law enforcement, such as the sheriff's race here, boy, we learned in COVID pretty quick how important the role of a sheriff can be. And I'm curious to know, has the attitude toward uh, the changing attitude toward the police, towards law enforcement, has that impacted the role of the district attorney? And uh, and if so, how is that? How how do you see it different? Uh, it certainly does impact the role of the district attorney because the district attorney uh, always is intention with law enforcement because they have different functions. Uh, law enforcement often thinks, oh, the district attorney is just dumping my cases. They don't take these cases seriously. They're giving them away, uh, those types of things. And of course, the district attorneys are always thinking, oh, law enforcement's not doing a good job investigating those kind of things. So without a respectful relationship um, and a trusting relationship between you know, the uniformed uh, law enforcement, um, whether it be sheriff's investigators or police departments, and the district attorney's office, um, you can have you can have um, a disconnect in the way laws are enforced in a certain jurisdiction. Um, some of the bigger cities in Texas are seeing it pretty starkly because some of the same people that are funding the district attorney's races are also funding campaigns to defund police departments you and bet. things like that. Yeah. Uh, Travis County uh, and Austin in particular um, are it's just a disaster. Yep. Um, they've got a homeless crisis there. Yep. Uh, they've got a crime crisis. Yep. Self-inflicted. Self-inflicted. And and then of course our, our governor's trying to uh you yeah, know smooth over Abbott. some of those roof yeah he's trying to smooth over some of those rough edges by using his state law enforcement. Uh, but they're just not equipped to to handle the local crime and the local uh issues the same way the local police department should be equipped and funded to do. Yeah, I mean, we're having, I live uh, just a few minutes from Portland, Oregon, and that city has seen a 200% rise in the murder rate. And it's just, uh, it's it's sad to watch. And these are leadership issues. And I've been telling people for a long time, that's why it matters. We've got a leadership crisis in the country and it matters from the president of the United States to the district attorney, to who we send to Congress, to who's on our city councils. If we don't have wise people who actually care uh, about the greater good of the people in their area, we're going to, I think we're going to continue this downward spiral. I want to uh, transition here and talk about your uh, involvement in the foster care system, because to me, someone who's as busy as you and your wife, right, you've raised, you know, four children, 
and you're getting ready to like, hey, the house is going to be quiet after work and maybe we can go out for dinner. Uh, But no, not you guys. You decided you're going to get involved in the foster care system, which I love because um, it hit it, it. it hits close to home for me, as I was telling you before we started recording. My sister has uh, recently adopted two little boys out of the foster care system in Oregon. It's changed the dynamic in her family 100%. And I saw uh, just a little glimpse into what she was dealing with as she was trying to navigate that system. And these boys who came to her really so broken. Uh, how did you and your wife get involved in, uh, in caring about kids in the foster care system? Well, uh, very reluctantly. I mean, it's just a, it's a super hard thing. Um, yep. When we lived in Texas uh, 15 years ago or so, um, you know, it, it piqued our interest. But moving around with the military, we didn't see the foster community. On military mm-hmm. bases, there are no foster kids. Um, it's just not, it's not something you see because, uh, because there's, a, there's a time lead to get certified and to get, you know, qualified to be a foster parent. And when you're in the military and you live somewhere for two years, um, it's not practical and it's not realistic to get certified and licensed to foster care and then foster and then leave. So um, in the military communities, it's just not something that we saw. We didn't see kids uh, go into foster care and we didn't see kids being fostered by military people. Uh, When when my military career uh, was over in 2015 uh, and we moved to Midland, um, we sort of found ourselves at the intersection of a great need, mm-hmm. um, an ability, and and a calling from God. And those three lines intersected, you know, right at our address. And so we went to an information meeting in September of 2016. Um, we decided that we were interested, and our goal was simply to foster. We We had this vision in mind of kids coming in and out of our house and us providing a safe place for them. Um, and that's not how it worked at all. Uh, we, we finally got licensed about a year and a half later. Uh, it, it was an extraordinarily lengthy process, but we eventually got licensed in, uh, in March of 2018. And uh, we got licensed on a Tuesday and we got our first call two days later on a Thursday. Wow. Wow. And that Saturday, we picked up a little boy and spent the day with him. Um, the following Wednesday, they brought him to our house and we fostered him for about four, four months. Uh, then he went to stay with family for about another four months. And then he came back to us in December of 2018 and he's been with us since and we adopted him in November of 2019. Wow. Wow. So, um, there's so much I want to talk to you about with regard to this subject, but I want to take it back to sort of the, 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 the basics of foster care because Parents, I think, are confused by the system. There's a lot of misinformation about it. A lot of people are kind of, you know, home visits are scary, you know, you know, and what's going to happen to my own kids if I start fostering. I want to sort of start with the process. So if somebody's interested in becoming a foster parent, where do they start? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And all those questions and all those issues are issues we've, you know, we've addressed uh, with our friends as well. Uh, so at least in Texas, and it's similar in other states. Uh, in Texas, uh, the foster care system is run um, by the Department of, uh, let's see, DFPS, Department of Family and Protective Services. Um, CPS is is how it's known, Child Protective Services. Um, the system in general is designed to 
place kids in a safe environment and give the caretakers, the parents, the usually just the mom, a chance to kind of get her life in order. Uh, and then the kid would be returned or the children would be returned to that mom. And that happens sometimes. Um, and, and that's the theory of the system. Um, but what also happens is that children are taken away from their mom or their parents. Um, and I say mom because that's primarily what you see. Um, they're taken away from the mom and then the mom can't get her act together. And then, you know, over the course of a year or so, uh, mom's rights gets terminated uh, by the court system. And then the kids are in foster care and uh, then they're available for adoption. Uh, and, and in Texas, there are thousands and thousands of children right now who are available for adoption because their parents have either died or they've been uh, had their parental rights terminated by the state uh, or they've relinquished their rights. Um, and there's a lot of ways that can happen. Some of the some of the kids find themselves in care um, because the parents have engaged in criminal activity and they're in prison, for example, and they don't have other family that can take care of them. Uh, some of the kids are in care because their parents uh, have neglected them and they they aren't able to keep a clean household. They're not able to keep food in the pantry. Um, they're they're not able to care for their basic needs. Uh, some of the children are in foster care because they've actually been abused by their parents. Mm. Um, and we've seen uh, all different examples of all of those in our four years that we've been in the foster care system. Wow. I'm out of time for today, uh, Glenn, but I'd love it if you'd come back tomorrow. I've got so many more questions as you're talking. I'm writing questions down uh, about the foster care system, kind of where you think we're going from here. Would you be willing to come back tomorrow and let's pick this conversation to. up? Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. You guys, we're out of time for today. I know a lot of you are interested in helping and becoming part of your community. Fostering is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for you to share the love of God with a child in need. We're going to come back tomorrow with Glenn and pick this conversation up where we left off today. Have a great day, everybody, and I'll see you back here tomorrow at the intersection of faith and culture.